Once I had spent time critically analyzing the data on the COVID-19 vaccines, it became very clear to me the efficacy of this particular novel technology was very, very poor, certainly in comparison to traditional vaccines, and the harms were unprecedented. Dr. Asim Alhatra is a highly published cardiologist and one of the better-known doctors in Britain. He was an outspoken proponent of the COVID-19 genetic vaccines until July of 2021, when the tragic and sudden death of his 73-year-old father caused him to take a deeper look at the data. We know now the original trials, the gold standard randomized control trials that led to the approval by the regulators of the vaccine in the first place revealed you were more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from the vaccine than you were to be hospitalized with COVID. Changing one's mind is one of the most psychologically terrifying experiences anyone can go through. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Dr. Asim Alhotra, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Jan, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been a couple of months since we interviewed, right after you had basically come out with this groundbreaking paper looking at COVID-19 misinformation. And I've learned a lot over the last few months from speaking with you. But you weren't always someone who was committed to exposing COVID-19 misinformation, or perhaps you were committed, but in a very different way. So tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so I think, Jan, what I would say is I come back to the basics of being a good doctor um, to understand where I went with the COVID situation. So throughout my whole career, I want to improve my patient outcomes, which means I have to be the best possible doctor I can be. But essential or crucial to doing that is to use the best available evidence on any intervention um, to make a clinical decision, but incorporate individual patient preferences and values, in other words, informed consent. And to do that properly, one needs to be able to give patients information in a way they can understand in terms of benefits and harms of anything that you do, whether it's a prescription of a drug or even whether it's adopting a particular diet or a lifestyle. So that's my background in terms of what I am a very strong advocate for. We call it ethical evidence-based medical practice. It should be the default and the norm for most doctors, but because of system failures, it is not. And that's something we can discuss in more detail. Um, once I had spent time critically analyzing the data on the COVID-19 vaccines, it became very clear to me that the efficacy of this particular novel technology, if you like, the mRNA products, was very, very poor, certainly in comparison to traditional vaccines, and the harms were unprecedented. And I was able in my paper to break down that in terms that people could understand for them in terms of benefit and harm. Um, and, and the conclusions were quite clear that it needed to be withdrawn, completely suspended for everybody, young, old, vulnerable, non-vulnerable, until an inquiry was launched to understand properly why we got it wrong, how we got it wrong, and what we need to do moving forward, which I kind of also elaborated on in my piece. You're an incredibly well-cited doctor, you know, in the scientific literature. That's one thing I've learned. Um, you've written, you've published a lot, and people have used what you've published a lot. When it came to the COVID-19 vaccination approach, it, at the beginning at least, you seem to approach it non-critically. And that's, I, I, I want to kind of dig into that a little bit, because you had, you had a transformation. Yeah. 
why is it, do you think, that given your general open-mindedness yep. at the beginning, you yes. didn't have that open mind, but you gained it along the way? To kind of elaborate a little bit more on your question, um, I was one of the early adopters of the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine in particular. I had two doses of that the beginning of 2021 because I helped out in the vaccine center. Um, I then went on Good Morning Britain about a month later to try and help tackle vaccine hesitancy. But it was based upon the information I had at the time, which was this. Traditional vaccines are some of the safest pharmacological interventions in the history of medicine. My arm is covered in scars from vaccines that I've had. Right? So I could not conceive of the possibility of any significant harm with the information that was available at the time. Uh, but the evidence changed, right? And it's crucial, certainly in medicine, and I've seen this throughout my career, as being somebody, for example, we'll talk about it, being a big prescriber of statin drugs to then understanding the data better and realizing statins weren't so great. So as the evidence changed, I then had to change my view and my opinion. Does that mean if I go back in time, would I have done exactly the same thing again, given the information I had then? Yes, I would. I would. I have no regrets taking the Pfizer vaccine and even promoting it with the information I had available at the time. I think that's really important to understand. Now, of course, there were people who were hesitant at the beginning. And a lot of the, those people, I remember having discussions with them, were going more on their intuition rather than any good evidence. Okay, it's new. We're not quite sure. We're low risk. My situation was a little bit different to many people because I'm a practicing doctor. So for me, taking the vaccine was never for protecting myself. It was only under, clearly at that time, a false belief I was going to protect my patients. So um, that's where we were at the time. And, uh, and things obviously changed massively as the information came in about the harms of the vaccine, a personal circumstance with my dad dying unexpectedly. Tell, tell, tell me more about that. Please. Yeah, so, so my father uh, in July, July the 26th, 2021, 5 p.m., I remember very clearly, um, he called me and said he had chest discomfort, chest pain. Uh, I'm a cardiologist first and foremost, so, you know, the, what he was describing, the history, sounded typical of something that sounded like it it's likely to be coming from the heart, right? So angina, a symptom representative of reduction of blood supply in one of the arteries of the heart or one or more of the arteries of the heart muscle. So I asked him to call an ambulance. Um, he wasn't in a lot of distress. So I didn't think it sounded like a full-blown heart attack, but it needed investigating. And uh, long story short, he'd call some neighbors over who were doctors. I went in the shower to change because I live in London. He's in Manchester, about 200 miles away to get on a train to come up and see him. Um, and in that time, he had a cardiac arrest. And the ambulance didn't turn up for 30 minutes, and he tragically died. So it was extremely shocking for everybody that knew him, because my dad was super fit and healthy. He was 73. He walked 10,000 steps during lockdown. I knew his cardiac history. He's one of the healthiest guys in his community for his age. Um, so it didn't make sense what happened. And then the post-mortem findings revealed two very severe narrowings in his coronary arteries. Out of the three major arteries, two were severely narrowed. So that was when I, the first sort of, the, the flashpoint on reflection that made me realize that my father was likely a victim of the mRNA vaccines as in a side effect. That's what killed him. 
I didn't know that at the time, even with the postmortem finding. It was only a few months later when bits of data started to emerge that clearly shows that the mRNA vaccines increase coronary inflammation. In other words, they accelerate. One of the mechanisms of harm, not the only one, but one of them is most likely it causes acceleration of coronary artery disease. You may have a bit of mild narrowing. It's not going to cause you a problem for 10, 20 years. Suddenly it becomes severe and you have a heart attack in a year. That's what we're talking about. Mm. I want to jump back a little bit. One of the things that struck me was this revelation that there was no actual data that Pfizer specifically had about re reducing transmission. This was just kind of a mantra that was repeated again and again by people who either thought they knew or perhaps they did it cynically, I don't know. But you know, you mentioned, you know, you were looking at the beginning at the available data and you mentioned that you know you got the vaccine because you believed it would prevent transmission of the disease to your patients potentially, but as we've learned, there there is no data on there was no data on this, actually. So, how, how is it that you came to believe that? I guess yeah, I'm glad you've asked that question. It's a great question. So, um, I uh, I think that this discussion has been slightly distorted recently about okay, they didn't test for transmission. There is an indirect effect of it affecting transmission potentially. Is it, if it prevents infection, you're not then going to transmit it. Mm. So that was the mechanism that was most likely thought of be, to be the case. I think the problem arose because very quickly within a few months, we knew it wasn't really preventing infection either. Mm. Now that could be, uh, it could be either one of two reasons. The original data, which suggested, by the way, one in 119 people in the randomized control trial was prevented from getting infected right? One in 119, which is a lot less than what people were led to believe in terms of the absolute reduction of risk of infection. Either that was false and it wasn't even 119, it was just not there. Or an equally maybe more plausible explanation is the original vaccine that was created was designed to do something, something, not brilliant, but something against the original ancestral Wuhan strain of the virus. Mm -hmm which mutated quite quickly within a few months of the administration to people and populations. And therefore, what we were then dealing with a few months later was a new strain of the virus, which was never going to be give you any protection from the vaccine anyway from infection. So there's a number of possibilities. But either way, people weren't told the information in a truthful way at the time. And it did not evolve with time, right? So you end up getting this whole perception of extreme benefit no evidence of any significant harms and it's going to prevent transmission you must take it take it to protect others even when that evidence probably Jan, was available to the fda to the mhra in our country in the uk pfizer knew that it was never going to have any significant effect on preventing transmission anyway and that's the lie that was perpetuated and the evidence to overcome that was available far well before they started to slowly um, uh, phase out mandates. You know, one of the things that came out for me reading, reading Dr. Joe Ladipo's book, a uh, recently published book, is that the way doctors and medical, budding doctors in medical school are taught about vaccines is something in the realm of what you said earlier. Um, they're a panacea, they're the safest thing ever, they, they work, the harms are negligible. For some reason, this particular 
you know, let, I'll just say drug, right, is treated very, very differently and put, a, put, a, put on a pedestal yes. compared to everything else yeah. because, because of just the, the history and the education that all of them essentially went through. And I thought that was really fascinating. I wonder if you think that, because remember, like, there's still a lot of doctors out there that believe the story that you no longer do. Yes, absolutely. There's an indoctrination um, that based upon, legit, for legitimate reasons, traditional vaccines are very effective, uh, are estimated to save four to five million lives a year globally. Um, and therefore anything with the name vaccine attached to it is something pure and good and should never be questioned. You're absolutely right. But unfortunately, we've seen in this particular instance, nothing could be further from the truth. We're talking about one of the most poorly efficacious pharmacological interventions in the history of medicine with the worst side effect profile being the most lucrative and, pos uh, and uh, pro profitable. And when you try and join those dots together, the picture that it paints is extremely ugly. You know, a real indictment on our whole healthcare system. So you did a very comprehensive review of this yeah. exactly risk-benefit, risk, risk yes. which somehow we completely forgot about, you know, and yeah. the medical and whole medical system forgot about yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic. But why don't you just lay out for me quickly what, what it yeah. is that you so, found? So when yeah. you look at the absolute benefits of the COVID vaccine, looking at um, what good it's doing for people. The only real evidence we have um, around that is on preventing people dying from COVID or hospitalizations. But I was able to look at data, real world data in the UK, which you could probably apply to many other parts of the world, looking at vaccinated versus unvaccinated and COVID deaths during a wave to see what benefit the vaccine was doing in preventing COVID death. Now, during the Delta wave, and by the way, this is not what we call correct. This information is not corrected for what we call confounding factors. What that means is the information I'm about to tell you is still likely an exaggeration, right? Because if you look at people in the real world over 80 that took the vaccine versus the ones that didn't, the ones that didn't tended to be, have more, be more, more, more vulnerable or less healthy, which meant they were already more predisposed, predisposed to having a poor outcome from COVID, right? But if we don't correct for those factors and just look at the age, during the Delta wave, you had to vaccinate 230 people over the age of 80 to prevent one COVID death. If you're between 70 and 80, 520. If you become under 70, you're starting having to vaccinate thousands of people to prevent one COVID death. What does that mean? So in a consultation, in keeping with the principles of ethical evidence-based medical practice and informed consent, if you would come to me, say you're in your 50s and you say, Dr. Malhotra, tell me about, I'm not sure about whether to take this drug or this vaccine, and I wouldn't be black and white. I would say, okay, well, the data tells us that the benefit for you taking it and preventing you dying from COVID is one in 2000. You'd be like, what are the harms? Well, based upon the best quality evidence, Pfizer and Moderna's own trial data, randomized control trial data, the risk of a serious adverse event from the vaccine for you, disability, life-changing, hospitalization, right? is at least one in 800. Now, Jan, if I gave you that information in that way, everyone's different. Is that something you're gonna be very keen to take, that vaccine? You know the answer, absolutely right. not. Absolutely. Yeah. So this information was never conveyed to the public, even though we have that information now. 
And that's what I attempted to do with the paper, is actually break it down for people. Not saying the vaccine doesn't work or the vaccine's great. It's like, what is the actual benefit of the vaccine? And what are the known harms based upon the best quality data, not speculation? Um, and it became a no-brainer for me. The conclusions, ultimately, is that when you also look at Omicron, you bring it more recent, the, the less lethal strain of COVID. For the over eight-year-olds, you need to vaccinate 7,300 people to prevent one COVID death. The harm of the vaccine remains constant. The risk of COVID goes down, right? So it's very clear, unequivocal. It's in normal circumstances, Jan, we wouldn't even be debating this. This vaccine would have been pulled a long time ago. It probably should never have been approved in the first place because we know now that the original trials, the gold standard randomized control trials that led to the approval by the regulators of the vaccine in the first place revealed you were more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from the vaccine than you were to be hospitalized with COVID. It's extraordinary. So how does one explain this? Well, one has to first and foremost understand the various interests involved in influencing information that doctors, patients, members of the public receive on a daily basis when it comes to their health, right? In this case, let's look at the pharmaceutical industry. They have a legal responsibility to produce profit for their shareholders. They do not have any legal requirement whatsoever to give you the best treatment, although most people would like think that to be the case. The real scandals are that regulators, such as the FDA, fail to prevent misconduct by industry. I'm gonna come on to that in a second. And that doctors, academic institutions, and medical journals collude with industry for financial gain. Most of the top 10 drug companies have committed major fraud, hiding data on harms, illegal marketing of drugs, totaling at least 13 or $14 billion between 2009, 2014 in the United States, most of those. But when all of those crimes, let's just call them out for what they are, right? When those crimes were committed by these companies, they still end up making more profit than they, uh, from the marketing and sales of those drugs than they did from the, when you minus out the fines that they had to pay. Nobody got fired, no one went to prison, and you're talking about you know, damage and harm to tens of thousands of people, deaths. You know, one of the most egregious examples is the Vioxx scandal. Drug company Merck um, launched a drug in 1999 on, which was supposed to be better than ibuprofen as an anti-inflammatory because it was less, uh, it was marketed as being less of an issue to the stomach, less likely to cause stomach problems, stomach ulcers, for example. And it later emerged that it doubled the risk of heart attacks and it probably caused the deaths of around 60,000 Americans unnecessarily from heart attacks. But it wasn't a mistake. It emerged later on during the litigation process that the chief scientist of Merck knew not long after the drug was rolled out in an internal email, it's a shame about the cardiovascular effect of this drug, but we will do well and the drug will do well. Now, I present that information at conferences, I put it up, they're aghast from the audience. And I ask people, what, how do you explain that? And there were all sorts of shouts from the audience, criminal, that kind of thing. And yeah, you can call it criminal if you like. Um, my hypothesis is something different. Based upon evidence, is that the legal entity that is the big corporation, these multinational corporations, in this instance, Big Pharma, 
very often, because it puts the financial need ahead of the human need and will deceive others for profit, right? We have a word for that, it's called fraud. They actually function like a psychopathic entity. Now, this isn't my um, definition. This is the definition from Dr. Robert Hare, forensic psychologist, preeminent expert in his field, um, behind the original def international psychiatric definition of psychopath, says that these companies often behave like that. Conning others for profit, unconcerned for the safety of others, right? Inex uh, uh, in uh, inability to experience guilt, right? These are all the different criteria that one applies to the definition of a psychopath. If one understands that over the last 20 or 30 years from probably rooted in well-intentioned but misguided neoliberal economic policies started by Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan here, where you've had increasing unchecked power of these sorts of entities over our lives, most of the funding from the, of the regulator in this country comes from the pharmaceutical industry, um, universities are supposed to be guardians of the truth and represent the moral conscience of society. Most of university research, medical research now comes funding from the drug industry, right? If you think just conceptually that you have an entity controlling our lives, more, has more and more control over our lives over a period of time, that functions like a psychopath, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what impact that's going to have on society's mental and physical health and how it's going to undermine democracy because they deliberately suppress information that people want to know about for those purposes. So therefore we're, we've got anti-democratic institutions that are really controlling or influencing our lives. And the reason we've not combated it, Jan, is because most doctors and the public are not aware of this problem and they don't even know that they don't know. How can one expect the society of doctors or medical practitioners, or frankly, society at large, who tends to more often than not, you know, trust the system to, to open their minds on this sort of thing. And even for you, it was difficult hmm. with all your knowledge yes. and all your work, right? So what we're dealing with now, the psychological phenomenon to get this information into the minds of most members of the public and doctors and policymakers um, with the cold hard facts is understanding that there is going to be two elements and barriers to that process. Part of being a good doctor is being a good communicator, right? And being a good communicator is being able to give information to different patients in ways that they can understand, right? So we have to challenge ourselves to make sure that when we have conversations with people, we are doing our very utmost in that communication to be able to get through to them, whoever they are, right? That's something that we need to keep doing as opposed to just polarizing the whole discussion and saying, I'm right, you're wrong, this guy's an idiot or whatever, right? This is not very productive. In fact, that's actually how this has played out in America, I've noticed this debate in the last year and a half. It's been very polarized, it's become politicized. There are different camps. Those camps need to start talking to each other. So, but before we communicate or try and get through to somebody with a different perspective than us, who's not aware of, say, what I know, is thinking about 
two psychological phenomena. One is the background of fear, right? Fear clouds critical thinking. And most of us, and still to some degree, are still afflicted with this almost PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder from the beginning of the pandemic, where this novel virus, these pictures coming from, from Wuhan of intensive care units in Italy and people dying, scared people beyond their imagination. And what that means is then your ability to engage in critical thinking to try and understand things is definitely impaired. Then the other aspect is, is this phenomenon called willful blindness. So, and we see his, historical events, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few examples in a second, but it's where human beings, and we're all capable of this in different circumstances, we probably already have done this in our lives in different circumstances, right? And this can apply to individuals in families or uh, spouses turning a blind eye to the fact their partners are cheating on them, right? To institutions, whether it's the likes of what happened in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein or with Jeffrey Epstein, or even countries, the whole Nazi Germany, what happened in Nazi Germany, right? So when people turn a blind eye to the truth in order to feel safe, avoid conflict, reduce anxiety, and protect prestige. Changing one's mind is one of the most psychologically terrifying experiences anyone can go through. You know, um, to quote the uh, Canadian-American economist John Kenneth Galbraith, Faced with changing, one changing one's mind and proving there's no reason to do so, almost everybody gets busy on the proof. So this is what we're up against, but it doesn't mean it's a barrier that we can't overcome by persistence, by empathy, by stating the cold hard facts. And when I came out with this paper, I wanted to create also a safe space for doctors who are still in a situation that I was in, where I took the vaccine and I in effect promoted it or reassured people. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to say information has changed. It's okay to, um, to talk about it. And I think that's the challenge we have right now, Jan, to be honest. Um, and a cousin of mine pointed this out in the States a year ago. He said, Asim, if people really know, knew what happened, that their uncle or their kid died unnecessarily from a vaccine that should never have been approved, you can see how that can go very, very badly wrong in terms of people getting violent, right? And it would be understandable for people to have those emotions, but that is not gonna, you know, take us any way further forward as a society. And we have to kind of all say, okay, this, this happened, it was a mistake. This was the structures in place that have been building up for years that we have not all collectively addressed properly allowed this to happen. And the only way we're gonna overcome it and move forward constructively is if we all work together and go back to the very basics about honesty and transparency and what about you know, basic human values that we seem to have forgotten around um, the sense of uh, the importance of speaking the truth, the very basis of it, right? There's another complicating factor, though, and this is that, you know, for example, the work that Laura Dodsworth has done in the UK exposing <clears throat> the so-called nudge units, right, in the UK government that actively tried to make people more afraid to elicit behavioral responses, i.e. vaccine uptake, right? Um, and then similar such operations, probably with other governments that aren't nearly as exposed. But what we do know is that there was, you know, a lot of government and 
industry and big tech collaboration, especially in the media around both censorship regimes and also, you know, they spent a billion dollars in advertising, for example, in the US or so on promoting, again, vaccine uptake. So one of the biggest lessons for me of the last many years is that some portion of society is profoundly influenced by seeming consensus across large megaphones in society. To me, that sort of explains why the level of fear was so high, right? Yes. But it almost seems like that same system can spring into motion again. Absolutely. I think the way to combat it, I, you know, I'm a, a numbers person and I like to, again, empower my patients, make them more health literate, which means giving them information that allows them to think about how they can live the best possible life they can live mentally and physically, right? And one way of doing that is to help people understand the numbers, right? So, for example, around the fear that was imposed on COVID, it was very interesting. One Gallup poll revealed that 50% of American voters thought that their risk of being hospitalized with COVID was 50%, one in two, right? When it was far less than 1%. I mean, that's extraordinary to think about how that influenced their behavior. Whereas if we'd reassured people and said, listen, your risk is so-and-so, then psychologically they would have been less fearful in a better state mentally as well. Without understanding the numbers involved, the public are vulnerable to exploitation of their hopes and anxieties by political and commercial interests. So there was an exploitation, absolutely, of the population through this fear narrative that was completely and totally unnecessary. But I think some of it, Jan, wasn't malicious as well. I think it was, I think it was incompetence. I have been in touch with two people who are quite senior in terms of their access to information at government level and know what's going on uh, in China. One of them is a Chinese, I won't name her, but she's a Chinese broadcast journalist. Uh, another one is a friend who has uh, very close ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the interesting things I discovered is that even, and this is something we saw reflected in the British government, in health policymakers, and I'm sure in the, in the States as well, is that they also had an exaggerated fear themselves of what COVID was going to do. Um, you know, recently, up until recently, we see Omicron, which we now know is no more worse than a bad cold. And we see pictures a few months ago from China of police officers or security personnel wearing hazmat suits in a military-style operation controlling the population. And I said to this journalist, I said, what's going on here? Like, this is Omicron. What, what, what are they doing? Her response was this. She said, Asim, you've got to understand, most of the Chinese population still think COVID is like Ebola. Touch it and you die. When you look at the pandemic response in terms of lockdowns, they had already planned, the WHO already had a contingency plan that if such a virus was to affect the world, our lockdowns are way forward, is this the right way to go? And the answer was no, it was no. They changed their mind because of China. China convinced the world 
that strict, stringent lockdowns in Wuhan contained the virus when it never did that. It spread throughout the whole of China. So there were mistakes that were made. I don't think they were malicious. I think they were rooted in incompetence. I think we have to, and, and then it was exploited by those commercial interests. Mm -hmm. And then you create this situation where ultimately what seems to have happened during the pandemic, certainly from a financial point of view, is you have an elite rich who've been got richer, whether it's the likes of Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, who've added billions to their fortunes, while the rest of the public, the, 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 the members of the public actually have suffered in a, in a way that is just unprecedented in terms of their mental and physical health. And that in itself really needs to be scrutinized properly to try and understand what we did wrong and what we need to do to change systems so this never happens again. It's kind of obvious that the CCP is a psychopathic entity, but I'd never quite thought of it in the context yeah. that you described. So, so the yeah. solution also in that, from a conceptual point of view, what's the opposite of psychopathy? It's compassion mm -hmm. and altruism. You know, the problem we've got, and social media makes this worse as well, is that people are increasingly losing access to the truth and a capacity to act in an empathetic way. Mm -hmm. And the combination together is devastating for society. Guess who Facebook partnered with early on in the pandemic to decide and control vaccine misinformation on their platform, Merck. Merck and Facebook, you can look this up, committed $20 million each to control vaccine misinformation. Merck, Merck, All right? And, and, and it's just, it's be, it beggars belief. I, um, a year ago when I went on GB News and after my dad's death actually, there was bits of data that came together that suggested the vaccine was causing coronary events. Um, I went on GB News and I posted it on LinkedIn. I've been on LinkedIn for a while. Without any appeal, I was removed. I'm permanently banned from LinkedIn now. So I thought this is interesting. So I went and looked up, LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft. Bill Gates, mm -hmm. say no more. And so what is the connection? So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which I write about in my paper, um, is heavily invested. Well, first of all, during the pandemic, we didn't talk enough about obesity, right? And that was, didn't get enough of an airing. It didn't get enough of an airing in terms of giving people actual tools through their diet of how they can rapidly reduce their risk of having poor outcomes from COVID within weeks, right? Very powerful. Um, one of the, so who's controlling the narrative or who's influencing the narrative? Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, heavily invested in stocks in McDonald's, Coca-Cola and pharmaceutical industry. And Bill Gates um, was not interested in discussing anything about chronic disease management through lifestyle and certainly has been a big proponent of the vaccine and mandating vaccines and influencing the WHO and funding media organizations to ultimately suppress information that the public need to know about when it comes to the vaccines. Now, I don't know Bill Gates, I've never met him. If I was to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think that he's very misguided, probably in his understanding of medicine. It's not engineering, it's not an exact science. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a basic understanding of, of uh, this particular technology and the harm that it's done. If he does, and he's still promoting or perpetuating this misinformation around it, then obviously that doesn't reflect very well on him as a human being. Briefly, why don't you tell me about exactly what you mean by, you know, lifestyle choices <laughs> leading to 
yeah. better outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I'll just I'll mention one that I became aware of, and I was just kind of shocked. It's obvious once you think about it. It's just simply like that people that had decent vitamin D levels, irrespective of the level of risk, intrinsic risk based on that, you know, yeah. gradient, age gradient, yeah. had much better outcomes. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Or, orders of magnitude greater outcomes. Yeah. So one thing, if you had just popped your vitamin yeah. D, absolutely. I, I mean, it, it feels to me like it's kind of criminal that we didn't know oh, that. Oh, completely criminal. Right? I mean, I, I wrote papers on it. I published... Uh, in newspapers, I was on TV, I wrote a book about it, I advised the Secretary of State for Health because I was the guy in the UK that came out and said Boris Johnson likely got sick and got hospitalized with COVID because of his weight once he was out, of course. So this is something I know very, very well. Um, but coming back to the lifestyle, I'm glad you've asked that question, Jan, because it probably brings us on to the statin discussion as well. Um, so as a researcher, as a cardiologist, my primary interest was always in combating heart disease, right? Why have we not managed to eradicate heart disease, despite the so-called, all the so-called amazing scientific evidence we have in terms of what we should be doing? Um, still biggest killer in the Western world. So a lot of my root cause analysis was to look back at the theories around cholesterol, the use of statin drugs, and break all of that down. And I published so much on that over the years. So I, I know a lot about this area. 80% of heart disease, 80% is influenced by lifestyle, but more importantly, environment that encourages certain behaviors, right? Maybe up to 20% is going to be because of genetics, but you can have a massive impact on heart disease purely from uh, a lifestyle approach, both in prevention and even potential reversal. What does that mean? Well, the root pathophysiological underlying factor behind heart disease is something called insulin resistance and chronic inflammation, and they overlap. Insulin resistance basically means your body becomes resistant to the hormone insulin over time, to the effects of the hormone insulin. And that in itself is the number one driving factor behind heart disease, responsible for about half of how people develop high blood pressure and is a precursor to type 2 diabetes. So these are really the biggest conditions around the world that also are linked to, by the way, cancer and dementia. If we combat insulin resistance, genuinely combat it, we would probably massively, we would reverse heart disease, we reverse the obesity epidemic, we reduce cancers, we reduce dementia. That's clear, quite significantly. So the question is, how can you do it? And what do we do about it? And through my individual work with patients and, and the data that's available, the good news, and I'll come on to that again, is your markers related to insulin resistance in your blood, or the risk factors associated with it, can be improved or reversed within just four weeks of changing lifestyle. Four weeks, right? And what does that mean? Well, the most important of those lifestyle factors is diet. Big problem, as you know, with obesity in the UK and the US. Um, and when I looked into the whole understanding uh, and the misguided approach to heart disease, certainly since the uh, 1970s, has been this over-obsession with focusing on lowering cholesterol, right? In fact, uh, the former, uh, one of the former editors of the American Journal of Cardiology, William Roberts, in an article in 2011 wrote this, and I combat, I, I counter this in my book, A Statin Free Life, he wrote, it's the cholesterol, stupid. In that paper, he says this, you can be an obese, smoking, um, type 2 diabetic, right, that doesn't, that's sedentary, 
And as long as your cholesterol is lower enough, low enough, you will never develop heart disease. Nothing could be further from, it's absolute nonsense, right? So there's been this focus in cardiology that the main way of combating heart disease is to lower cholesterol through diet and drugs. So I broke down all of that data and basically showed through peer-reviewed research in high-impact journals with other cardiologists that, first of all, there is no relationship at all or very little relationship between lowering LDL, so-called bad cholesterol, and reducing heart attacks and strokes. Statins are the most probably one of the most prescribed drugs in the history of the world, most lucrative, $3 trillion industry, prescribed to a billion people globally. The overwhelming majority of those people prescribed that trastatin drug will not be told or be aware that it's not gonna prolong their life by one day, based upon industry-sponsored research. And a best case scenario for them in preventing a heart attack or stroke, a non-fatal heart attack or stroke, is one in 100, 1%. And a link to that has been this low-fat food approach, exploited by the food industry, flawed science at the beginning, lower the fat, lower cholesterol, prevent heart disease. We increased our consumption of refined carbohydrates and sugar. Low-fat marketed foods, which are gonna have the opposite effect on your health because they're full of sugar and refined carbs. That exacerbates insulin resistance. It's a mess. So I spent a lot of time before all of this, this is what I've worked on for many, many years, is trying to shift that paradigm to the things that you should be focusing on is eating real food, minimizing consumption of low-quality carbohydrates, your breads, your pastas, rice, etc. Um, moderate exercise, you don't have to overdo it. You know, brisk walk, 30 minutes a day, pretty powerful. Uh, and last but not least, one that's probably the most neglected but the most challenging in modern society is chronic psychological stress. So if you look now at chronic psychological stress as a risk factor for development of heart disease, it is equivalent to having either high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes or being a smoker. And the chronic psychological stress works in an adverse effect synergistically with all the other factors because if you're more stressed, you're more likely to hit the junk food, be more sedentary, whatever, right? So it is just a vicious cycle. The most fascinating bit of research that I discovered, which I then implement with my patients when I advise them, is that heart disease reversal, which is unheard of still in most cardiology circles, that means the narrowing of the arteries, okay? Actually those narrowings reversing, right? Um, the only good data we have, it's not the highest quality level of evidence, but it's still interesting, is from India, which showed that in patients who had moderate to severe coronary artery disease, who went, underwent a healthy lifestyle program, the only intervention by far that was responsible likely for reversing heart disease was doing 40 minutes of meditation a day. Listen, modern medicine has done a lot of great things, not as much as what most people are led to believe. If you look at increase in life expectancy in the last 150 years, we've added 40 years to our life expectancy since 1850 to now, on average. You can attribute about three and a half to five of those 40 years to modern medicine. Most of it have happened through public health interventions, safe drinking water, seatbelts in cars, smoke-free buildings. The single biggest intervention on reducing death rates from heart attacks in the last three, four decades, reduction in smoking prevalence. Taxing cigarettes, the single most important intervention in the last several decades in reducing death rates from heart disease, right? Now, where am I coming to with this? And it, it links back to our discussion about COVID and the vaccines and the drug industry. If we are gonna improve 
people's mental and physical health, which is something that most people want. If you ask people in international surveys what's most important to them, they say that the most important thing to people is their health, followed by a happy family life. Health is still the most important issue for people. If we're going to improve people's health, it's not going to happen without changes in the law. It's as in on a population level. It's going to be very difficult because we currently have laws that allow industries to, in effect, kill for profit. And when it comes to even the foods that we eat, it's just like tobacco did. The food industry, there's increasing evidence that the food industry is deliberately putting ingredients together in certain packaged foods that most of the American population are taking on a regular basis that is designed to encourage overconsumption, that it's addictive. Um, and we know that the sugar industry suppressed information on the harms of sugar for a very long time, just like tobacco did with their cigarettes, right? It's the same problems again and again and again. So we need to address the root cause of the problem, which is the legal entity that is the corporation. And that really is the major problem. Corporate power, addressing corporate power needs to be a public health priority. So um, it's just that we've normalized certain aspects of our lifestyle that um, have stopped people really thinking about this in a way that's going to help them. Ultra processed food is now more than 50% of the calories in the British diet, probably close to 60% of the calories consumed in the American diet. Ultra processed food is essentially high glycemic index carbohydrates that increase glucose and insulin, which are responsible for driving heart disease, but also are the major risk factors after age for COVID outcomes being bad. Obesity, right? I mean, that's obesity. What, well, right? excess, well, it's beyond obesity. So obesity is actually slightly a, a, a marker of a much bigger problem. I was at the tip of the iceberg in terms of diet-related disease, right? So poor diet is responsible for more disease and death globally than physical inactivity, smoking, and alcohol combined. So in terms of a lifestyle aspect, the most important thing you can do first and foremost is change your diet. And just from changing a diet alone, you know, within four weeks, you can reverse these risk factors. Um, so what's the problem with the diet? So ultra-processed foods. So this is, in very simple terms, if it comes out of a packet, any packaged food, and it has five or more ingredients, it's ultra-processed, don't eat it. If you can count on, go to the supermarket, the shopping mall, and you pick up a loaf of bread, and you can count five or more ingredients, it's ultra-processed, don't eat it. It's toxic to your body, it's gonna encourage overconsumption, it's not nutritious, right? That's it. Just eliminating those and the low quality carb, and drinks, for example, sugary drinks, juices, that kind of stuff. I ask my patients, I say, they say, hold on, well, we used to all this stuff, blah, 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 I'm gonna be miserable. No, just do it for a month, right? Can you do it for a month for me? And people are just, they're staggered when they come back. Not just in terms of their health markers getting better, they feel better. This isn't about, I'm not somebody that, you know, I believe in the best of what life has to offer in terms of quality of life. So if you're gonna help a patient, if you're not gonna improve the quality of life, there's no point from my perspective and it's not gonna be sustainable. So it's a win-win it's a, it's a when I'm improving their heart disease risk factors, but they come back and they say, listen doc, I'm sleeping better, I've got more energy, I feel better, I can carry on doing this. So that's what I would advise people to do. I think the challenge we have, Jan, is even though we tell people to do this, if the food environment is working against you, people are gonna relapse. This is predominantly an environmental problem. So yes, empower patients, which is what I do, but we're not gonna achieve very much on our population level until we get governments actually working for the health of the people, not working for the health of those very industries that are getting you hooked and addicted to sugar and ultra-processed foods, right? And, and now you're touching on the second point that I wanted to touch on, which is what some people describe as regulatory capture, right? Yeah. Of, uh, you know, by, by industry. Yes. Or, but other ways of describing our public-private partnership. Yeah. 
Well, what I would say is, as a you know, qualified doctor for over 20 years, whose primary responsibility is to seek the truth, to help my patients, to look at evidence, markets and healthcare do not work for the interests of the patient. Okay? Let's give you the example of the United States. You have some of the highest spending in the world on healthcare, $3.5 trillion, 18% of your GDP okay, is spent on healthcare. Some of the worst outcomes in the world. I can show you a graph across different states in the US. There is an inverse correlation with the amount of spending in a state and the healthcare outcomes. So the more the spending, so costs go up, quality goes down. Financial incentives should never become part of the doctor-patient discussion because there is an asymmetry of information. The doctor can wittingly or unwittingly exploit their knowledge to make sure that patients get tests they don't need, get treatments they don't need, and that causes harm, right? So commercialized healthcare systems actually are damaging both to rich and poor. The rich people suffer because they have over-treatment, subject to dubious, and I see this in my, so I've worked both in the private and the public sector, right? So I see patients come to me privately and the kind of stuff that they've spent money on, on ridiculous tests they didn't need, drugs they didn't need, right? Um, because they had money. So, so it damages the rich, right? They get exploited. And then poor people don't get access to necessary care. And, uh, you know, I think we just need to go back to the basics. I'm very much a, you know, uh, I believe uh, there is a lot to be learned from ancient wisdom. Um, and uh, you, you look at people like, for example, Socrates and the Buddha, who around 2,500 years ago, and they seem to have it pretty sussed out quite well in terms of how we should be living our lives for the goodness of our mental and physical health. But even though we've advanced technologically in the last 2,500 years, Jan, we haven't progressed psychologically. And I think in recent years, I would say we're, going, we're regressing psychologically. If we go back to the very basics of being honest and truthful and having true dialogue with people and being empathetic, then um, society would be much better off. Well, Dr. Asim Alotra, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Thank you all for joining Dr. Asim Alotra and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.